Hello, and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. Episode 66, B.J. Palmer, Behind the Curtain. Doctors of chiropractic and students of the greatest healing profession, welcome back, and it's great to be back. It has been nearly four weeks since our last episode, and I would like to catch everyone up on what's been going on. First, I had the amazing opportunity to speak to the students of Palmer College of Chiropractic in Florida. On the evening of October 8th, I spoke on chiropractic philosophy and, in how, and how it helped influence my personal and professional development. <clears throat> on October 9th, I spoke on the history of the scientific developments in chiropractic from 1895 to 1951. After my presentation, students received hands-on training with the Titron Thermal Scanner and gained a deeper understanding using the instrument which is guiding the future of chiropractic. We then concluded with patient setups using the knee chest specific chiropractic technique. Thank you again to the, to the student leaders of Knee Chest Unity for the invitation. Luca O'Brien, Kevin Castro-Reyes, and Granger Brown. You gentlemen represent the principles of specific chiropractic, and through your efforts will chiropractic continue to develop along its scientific lines. Second, Nichest specific chiropractic certification seminars We'll be hosting our next seminar on October 23rd and 24th, 2021 in Ackworth, Georgia. Students and chiropractors will learn x-ray analysis for specific subluxation listings, instrumentation pattern analysis, and vectored adjusting on a knee chest upper cervical table. For more information, find us on Facebook at Knee Chest Specific Chiropractic. Now that we've got our announcements taken care of, let's get back to this episode. So, I just looked in my volume 25 and realized that we have less than 100 pages remaining. It's exciting that in a few more episodes, we're going to conclude my favorite green book. It's been over a year since we began this journey together. And it's my hope that you've developed a strong sense of appreciation for the science of chiropractic as it was developed by B.J. Palmer. Regardless of your technique or philosophy, the science of chiropractic is the common ground upon which all chiropractors can stand together in getting sick people well. So, with that in mind, we need to start thinking which green book should we read from next. Personally, I'm thinking either Volume 14, Chiropractic Textbook, or Volume 20, Posture Constant Spinograph Comparative Graphs, or Volume 35, History in the Making. Here's my thoughts on those green books. 
<clears throat> Volume 14 covers the 33 principles of chiropractic, chiropractic philosophy, and the complete cycle of mental impulse transmission. What I really love is how this text naturally builds upon the philosophy and science of chiropractic in a successive order. From the freshman, sophomore, junior, and then finally to the senior level of understanding. Dr. Stevenson develops principles in a simple way to understand for freshman students, grows the idea through the sophomore and junior levels of understanding, and then matures the idea for senior students. Volume 20 focuses on x-ray analysis and pre and post x-ray results using specific chiropractic. This volume was written at the beginning of the BJ Palmer Research Clinic years, and you can see a lot of the matured ideas from volume 25 take their origins here. For those who love chiropractic science, this is your green book. Volume 35 represents BJ's final contribution to the art of chiropractic. With the brilliant mind of Dr. J. Clay Thompson, B.J. Palmer developed the drop headpiece that was and is used for side posture, toggle recoil adjusting. The two chiropractors would also develop the first drop table used for full spine adjusting. Uh, wait, did I just say full spine adjusting? in the same sentence as B.J. Palmer? Yes, B.J. gave the green light at the Palmer School to reintroduce full spine adjusting on a drop table. But that's a story for another day. So make sure to think about which green book you would like to hear next as season one of the green book commentaries comes to a close. Visit our Facebook, Facebook group at the Green Book Commentaries and post your response for which Green Book you would like to hear next. Now that we have all that taken care of, let's dive into episode 66. You may remember a while back that I did an episode about chiropractors talking about their experiences with B.J. Palmer. One episode had featured Fred Barge and another with Clay Thompson. In this episode, Dr. Larry Allen of Sun City, Arizona, talks about his time as a student at the Palmer School. What I love about these stories is that we are given a more personal insight into B.J. Palmer than, than the Green Books offer. Outside of the chiropractic researcher and constant scientist, B.J. Palmer was as human as you and I are. He had his faults, his insecurities, and his imperfections. These human traits were captured and written about by those who were closest to the man, the myth, the legend. We begin our reading from today's chiropractic, the commemorative issue, 1990. <clears throat> I owed my life to this strange profession by Larry Allen, D.C. 
At a very young age, I couldn't get to Palmer School of Chiropractic fast enough, for I owed my very life to this strange profession. It was strange to me because I had five uncles who were medical doctors, and two of them even taught at the University of Michigan. But when all else failed, I tried chiropractic, and that miracle inside me began to function and has never stopped. <clears throat> the 1930s were tough times with jobs far and few between. But I was lucky arriving at Palmer at the beginning of Lyceum. I had $150 on me after Charlie Ruffle took $135. He took me to the school cafeteria and introduced me to Pinky, who put me to work. I never left the cafeteria until Lyceum was over. I slept on tables or chairs. An early morning arrival. I met BJ at 4.30 in the morning when he unlocked the cafeteria and headed toward the tobacco counter to help himself to White Owl cigars. I told him that I didn't have the keys to the cash register, but I offered to take his money if he had the proper change. He looked me up and down and asked my name, where I was from, and why I came to school. And he let me know that he had seen me in the tent at night when he lectured. However, he informed me that he had arrangements with Pinky to cover the cost of the cigars. Each morning for months to come, I opened up the cafeteria at 5.30, started those things that needed starting, and responded to BJ never late than 6. We talked about the sick water that came through the Davenport system. The chlorine was strong enough to bleach your shorts. Right in the middle of the cafeteria was well water that BJ had drilled and piped throughout the school. BJ allowed anyone to bring containers and fill them with well water. Sunday mornings just after church was a great time for residents to come, fill their jugs, and have something to eat. By the way, all the time I worked in the cafeteria, I was given a meal for each hour worked, and for every other hour worked, I was given 25 cents, which was credited to the account of what I owed to PSC. Once I received a 10 cent tip, probably some wealthy visiting chiropractor. <clears throat> One morning, BJ told me to check with Ruffle about a job at WOC. They needed someone to clean up and set up for the morning shows. I found that I could do this after 10 p.m. and check the job out with the WOC boss. It was the only day that I had ever skipped a class. I was waiting for the boss cooling my backside in the roof garden on top of the administration building when he walked out with a fellow that I recognized as a sportscaster on radio, one of the best. The secretary identified me, and Moon Reagan introduced his brother, Ronnie, the sportscaster, 
who was leaving that moment for Hollywood to make his fame and fortune. What a jerk to give up a wonderful position for a gamble. That was something I wouldn't do. I was going to work hard, study hard, and make a go of chiropractic. You know the rest of the story on Ronnie. Staying the course. I wasn't too long at PSC when I got far behind with my finances. My folks couldn't help and there just wasn't enough work during the Second Depression. So my folks wrote me a letter and told me to quit school, come back to Ann Arbor, and take up my old job in construction. My folks thought that I was too young anyway and that I needed a rest. I sent the letter over to the BJ Clinic and asked Amy if she would give it to BJ and that after he had read it, I would like to talk with him. Amy stuck a note in my box the next day and said to see BJ before clinic hours. I honestly felt like I was walking to a hallowed chamber on sacred grounds. Amy escorted me into his office and left the room. I sat in a massive chair, and BJ was at his desk with his back turned to me, typing on either a standard Underwood or Royal that had a roll of paper large as the newspaper on a high-low table. I was amazed that BJ could type as well as he did. He moved right along, and, of course, he had his own way to spell, as I sometimes do. I cleared my throat and said, <clears throat> Larry Allen here, sir. A very long silence ensued. And without turning around, he said, Does Mother Nature take a rest in the middle of summer while growing corn? I said, No, sir. He didn't say any more and just went on typing. I sat for a long time before I finally realized that he had said all he was going to say. So I went to clinic and never did leave the college until I finished. I still haven't really finished either. I have been back for every lyceum, homecoming, except one or two, plus the time I was in service. There was a very old building, beautiful in its day, situated between the administration building and the classrooms. Vern Link, BJ's devoted director of everything, put me in charge of tearing it down. It was so rotten that in helping to remove stored things, I fell through the flooring from the third floor to the first and almost dropped into the basement. BJ made sure I had the best of care. He said he was glad that I wasn't seriously cut or hurt, and he wanted to know if I would like an adjustment. When I said yes, I didn't realize how careful he was, but his adjustment was like being kicked by a mule. After leveling the building, we built a campus. A sly sense of humor. Just once, I took a break at PSC and went to a smoker held at the Elks Lodge in Davenport. Who should show up but BJ and P.A. 
Pappy Ramir, head of the X-ray department. I took up a collection from those near me and with about $3 went backstage. I told those in charge that BJ was out in front and asked if for the charge I had picked up, one of the girls would go out and give him a big smooch. That $3 was a lot of money then. It probably would have paid for a week's rent on a room. At least, that's what my room cost. One of the gals came out into the crowd after things got underway, and she wiggled her way up to BJ and said, You are the famous BJ Palmer, aren't you? BJ shook his head and pointed to Pappy Ramirez whereupon this gal planted her big, juicy red lips on the top of his bald head. BJ laughed so hard, I thought he might become ill. He took up a We took up a petition to have Ramir removed from X-ray in order to put Dr. Lyle Sherman, later of Sherman College, in charge. BJ took about five seconds to destroy the document and said Ramir had more x-ray smarts in his little finger than Sherman did in his whole body. But shortly after that, BJ made Dr. Sherman the head of the BJ clinic. Respect for fraternity. BJ loved Florida, and especially his home there. While I was in school, I don't believe he had purchased what was to be his final home in Sarasota. However, every winter, BJ, Herb Hender, and a few others went to Florida. One day, he called me at school and said, Alan, I'm sending up a barrel of fish we caught. Get the Delta Sigma Chi boys together and put on a feed for the students at no charge. We did, and it was great. One day, there was a fire at BJ's home in the organ loft. The fire department came, assessed the situation, and decided the most damage they could do was to chop a hole in the front of the house at the top of the loft and see if they could fill the chamber with water. At the least, it seemed to be a stupid plan. The Delta boys gathered around BJ and said we'd, we'd clean up the mess. He was grateful as always. The Delta quarters were in the basement of the classroom building, under the x-ray area, and next to the barber shop. We were very close, and BJ was respectful, especially on Thursdays when we wore our fezes. No tolerance for the foolish. On those days, BJ lectured to the total student body, which numbered less than 300. You didn't fuss around in his class. He could dress a student down so fast and with the fewest words of any person I've ever known. For example, during the class break time, while we were all outside before going in to hear BJ's lecture, one undesirable student was running around in the snow barefooted. BJ came walking across campus And this turkey ran up to him, stuck his finger out, and said, Good morning, BJ, old boy. No one ever did anything like that. 
BJ stopped, looked him in the eye, and spit in his hand. He never said a word, but walked into the classroom building. The student, a jerk that none of us could stand, took off. And to this day, no one has ever seen or heard from him. The Lyceum Experience Setting up the tent, cleaning the folding chairs, and making a stage were jobs that I did not look forward to. BJ was the boss, no matter who he made boss, and everything was exactly as he wanted it. He was always right in choosing something different to express at Lyceum. It was exciting, and he loved to have Margie Minot play the organ. He had a fairly good voice, and he could play the organ well, too. He was self-taught, of course. During Lyceum, BJ gave a talk each night. Everyone came and everyone joined in the singing before he started his lecture. Once he started, no one made a noise. If a baby cried, he would stop talking. And if the baby kept on crying, he would say, I can wait. That meant, get up and get out. An hour or so with BJ was more refreshing and meaningful than a week with anyone else in chiropractic. Oh, how he could entertain us with stories about Morris Fishbein, the executive secretary of the American Medical Association. BJ never backed down from anyone. <clears throat> at, my, at my graduation, BJ shook my hand and held on for just a few seconds. I walked across the stage, and Amy was standing there. She took my diploma away from me and said, When you grow up, come back, and we will give you this. At that time, I was only 18 years old, and the law required a person to be 21 to graduate from PSC. Keeping it straight. After leaving Palmer, I was shocked when I got out in the, into the real world of chiropractic. It seemed like everyone had his own idea of chiropractic. I believed with my whole heart that BJ was right, to the point that I was almost a fanatic. The naturopaths tried to guide me into their domain so that I could just practice right away, but I just couldn't bend. Then, I couldn't even adjust below the axis without feeling that I was tainting pure chiropractic. I would drop BJ and Sherman a line and sometimes Price. All three of them gave me the support I needed. About that time, I realized I should even follow BJ by associating with the Black Bowtie Boys. That's another story. But even though they didn't pay very well, I was with those who could be trusted, as BJ had trusted them. Basic science was tough, but when I hit that magic age of 21, I got a Michigan license. BJ sent a picture of himself, as he did for many, with the message, I love you because you love the things that I love. BJ. 
The strength that BJ provided gave me the will to believe. And for more than 50 years, I have not found that will to be wanting. At Home in Sarasota At that time, BJ spent his last Christmas. I was the team trainer for part of the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, which held its winter workouts in Sarasota before going to the Olympic Games in Italy. On Christmas morning, BJ called when he found out that I was in Sarasota. He asked me to come visit him. So I arrived at 8.30 a.m. and was let in by the manservant. BJ was seated on a Davenport, and I was seated on a twin Davenport across from him. We were at right angles to a large picture window and had a large coffee table between us. BJ had been writing on his six-foot plywood board, which was about six to seven inches wide and had a clip at the top. He had a stack of yellow x-ray paper, about two inches high. His procedure was to slide the six-foot board across his lap, and he would start writing at the clip end. He pulled the board and paper forward as he wrote, and when he came to the end of the paper, he ripped it off and tossed it in any direction. Then he would slide the board back and continue writing. Each page was numbered to keep it order. BJ asked a few questions and seemed satisfied with my replies. When he began to talk, he talked at length. After 20 minutes, I started to get up and he asked me what my problem was. I said, the posted time is on the front door and my time is up. BJ said, I'll tell you when it's time. At about 11.30 a.m., he seemed awfully tired to me, and I mentioned that to him. He said, first, I want, to see what, I want you to see what I'm doing. I followed him into the hall where the bedrooms were located, and much to my surprise, one side of the wall contained solid bookshelves filled with black notebooks. <clears throat> when I inquired about the collection, he said it was material on a, diff- on a number of different subjects that he had written and that none of it had been published. Where in the world are they? If half of them are no good, the other half are priceless. What a surprise was in store for me. The farthest bedroom held three banquet tables in a U-shape, and the next 12 monthly issues of The Fountainhead News were all laid out. He spent a good 30 to 40 minutes explaining why he was developing a written plan for the future of chiropractic. Then he led me up to the front door, turned around, took hold of both lapels of my coat, looked up at me, he seemed so small then, and with tears in his eyes said, Larry, I can't change, but I wish that I could. With that, it was goodbye, and the resounding cry for help, to be steadfast and unbending for the principle of chiropractic, no matter what. BJ indirectly taught that there is no price enough, no price great enough to water down pure, unadulterated chiropractic. 
I trust that I have been as responsible to the profession. When I heard that BJ had only a short time to live, I called his home and he answered. There was no one there with him. I told him I loved him and that the profession loved him and would always need him. And I wished that I could at that time take his place. BJ said, you can't, Larry, but I understand. And I love you. Goodbye. He lasted only a few more days.